Hello and welcome. This is an audio recording of an IFG live event. Good afternoon and welcome to this, the third and last of a series of events the Institute for Government has been holding today to mark the fifth anniversary of the creation of the Department for International Trade and the birth, or perhaps rather rebirth, of the UK's independent trade policy. My name is James Kane and I'm an associate here at the Institute. A bit less than five years ago, back in May 2017, we at the IFG published a paper called Taking Back Control of Trade Policy which looked at what the government needed to do to take advantage of the new opportunities arising from having its own independent trade policy. We argued in that paper that the government needed a clear trade strategy agreed across Whitehall. But we still haven't seen a document published called the UK Trade Strategy, but you might say we've been seeing one emerge de facto over the last few years, and in particular with the agreement in principle of a trade deal with Australia announced, particularly over the last few weeks. But the disagreements reported in Cabinet over what the UK should give Australia on agricultural trade to secure that deal suggest that not everyone is signed up to the UK strategy. So does the UK have one? Does the UK have a trade strategy at all? And if so, what is it all about and who is it for? To help answer those questions, I'm delighted to be joined by a superb panel, so superb in fact that we have had to extend the length of this session by 15 minutes to get all of them in. First of all, we have Graham Stewart MP, Parliamentary Undersecretary of State at the Department for International Trade and Minister for Exports, and the Right Honourable Emily Thornbury MP, Shadow Secretary of State for International Trade, who will both offer some brief opening remarks before we move to a wider discussion. Joining Graham and Emily on our panel, we also have Nick von Bestenholtz, Director of Trade and Business Strategy at the National Farmers Union, Anna Isaac, who I believe is on her second day as Economics Editor for The Independent, and Martin Bell, who is Deputy Director for International Trade at the Scotch Whiskey Association, but is appearing in a personal capacity. Before I hand over to Graham, I should say that this event is on the record. A video and sound recording will be available within 24 hours. My colleague has already started live tweeting the event from at IFG events, but do please tweet along using the hashtag IFG Trade. And we also want to hear from you in the event, so please send in your questions throughout the course of the session using the Q&A function that you should be able to see on your screen. And if someone else has asked a question that you also want answered, then do upvote it so I know it's popular and I will try to get through as many of them as possible. I should say as well, please do try and ask your questions as early as possible in the session to make sure we have time to get to them before the end. And with that, uh, could I turn to you now, Graham, for your opening thoughts? Thank you, James, for your introduction. As a minister at the Department for International Trade for more than three years now, um, of the five that it's seen, um, I've seen how far we've come. Because when the department was created five years ago, we had, in truth, in the UK, minimal trade policy capability. To put it bluntly, we'd lost our muscle memory as an independent trading nation. But since then, we've built it back up. We're now negotiating our own trade deals, striking deals with 68 countries so far, plus the EU, worth £730 billion in trade as of last year. We're now operating our own tariff regime, which is lower, simpler and greener than what we had before. And we're using our independent voice at the World Trade Organization alongside our presidency of the G7 to set the standard for modern trade. Our independent trade strategy is values-driven and value-generating. It's in line with our plan for growth and the integrated review, which recognise trade as fundamental 
to our recovery and long-term prosperity. We are working with like-minded democracies to advance our shared values from freedom and the rule of law to food standards, labor rights, and data protection. We're also generating greater economic value by opening up the world's largest and fastest growing markets to our exports. We know that the richest opportunities lie across the Asia Pacific, where the center of global economic gravity is shifting. And that's why we're embracing the economies which will define our future. Our Australia deal is the strongest example yet of what we can deliver. This agreement, our first negotiated from scratch, secures huge benefits, ranging from zero tariff access for our goods exports to modern services and data provisions too. We've gone further than before in our Japan deal, playing to our strengths in services and data trade. But we're working on many more deals, such as those with New Zealand and the terms of our, of our accession to the CPTPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership. We've secured market access for our beef exports to the United States, and my friend, the Secretary of State, is in the US this week seeking access for other world-class British produce, like our lamb. Our Office for Investment is helping land high-value deals, while our trade and investment hubs bring home the full benefits of free and fair trade, supporting jobs and growth in every region and nation of this United Kingdom. In the last five years, DIT has been able to achieve so much. But this is only the beginning, as our strategy is not just about our success here and now, it's also about the next five years and the years far beyond that. Thank you. Thank you very much. And uh, now could I turn to Emily for, for opening remarks uh, from you, Emily, the floor is yours. Thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, and thank you to the Institute for Government for hosting this really important event and gathering together such an excellent panel. It's a real pleasure to be here in three minutes. In three minutes, does the Department of Trade have a strategy? Well, I suppose on a semantic level, it does. It has a clear goal, as published in the 2019 Conservative Manifesto, that by the end of 2022, 80% of UK's trade should be covered by free trade agreements. Um, it has a clear and simple plan to achieve that goal, which is to sign as many trade deals as possible, as quickly as possible, covering as many countries as possible. And, uh, and it even has a pretty blunt but effective approach to managing strategic risks, which is to treat anything that might get in the way of securing those trade deals as a complete irrelevance, uh, whether it is concerns about human rights or workers' rights or the environment, whether it is effective parliamentary scrutiny, or even whether it is in the interests of domestic industries, ranging from fishing and farming to financial services. And I'll go even further. By their own strategic metrics, I think that the department is succeeding. 67 non-EU countries signed up to trade deals, plus the European Union, and two more in the pump with Australia and New Zealand. According to the WTO's annual report last Friday, the UK was responsible for more than three quarters of all the trade deals notified to the organisation in 2020. That's a hell of a lot of handshakes and signing ceremonies and press releases, loads of Instagram. And it also takes the department a hell of a long way towards achieving the 80% goal. So the central questions that I have 
which I suppose we'll explore in this session, are not whether there is a strategy, but whether it's the right strategy for Britain. And I'll close with five examples of them. First, are there are, are the trade deals that are being signed maximizing the export opportunities for key growth sectors of our economy? And are formal free trade agreements even the best mechanism to do that? Second, uh, does it make any sense to put all this energy into, for example, UK membership of CPTPP and so little energy by comparison into fixing the holes in our deal with Europe? Third, are the minuscule benefits of these trade deals worth the permanent damage that we are inflicting on our farming industry and the regulatory risks that we are accepting, ranging from IDS to uncontrolled data sharing? And fourth, for three quarters of the world's trade deals, are we missing a trick by not at least trying to do something truly groundbreaking with them in areas like trade and services? And finally, given this historic opportunity to reset our trade policy for the 21st century, are we not missing a trick by failing in a moral obligation to make a priority of issues like human rights, workers' rights and climate change? So those are some of the questions that I hope that we'll explore this afternoon. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, those were indeed some extremely interesting questions, uh, which I am sure everyone on the panel is looking forward to exploring. Um, can I come first of all to you, Anna? What do you make of how things have gone over the last few years? Is it, uh, have we just had a sort of shopping list of deals or is there something, is there a clear strategy behind it in your view from the outside? Uh, I'm just struggling to unmute, so I don't know if you can hear me. You can. Brilliant. Hear you, yeah. Fantastic. It looks like it's still processing, but we're we're away. Um, so it's been an interesting time for me. I started covering trade um, almost uh, almost as soon as the department um, began. Um, I think I think uh, as we sort of heard in our opening remarks, we sort of both both sides are true here, right? We have we have a strategy, and then is it the right one? Um, in in some areas, it's coming together. Um, within a more coherent fashion. I think some of the consultation processes with business have improved and they needed to quite radically, quite quickly. I think the problem is, is that we've, we've set about having an independent trade policy in a situation where the most important trade agreement the UK has at the moment still in terms of proportion of its trade had to be based on a political problem rather than a trade-based solution. And so I think that's a, a difficult climate in terms of business relations, because for every other trade agreement we've had, a lot of the process has been about going to business communities and saying, what would you like to see? And that's come at a time when businesses have faced two crises, fundamentally more trade barriers with their likely single biggest trade partners, but also a pandemic has also got in the way in the last two years. So we have to remember that these two things have put a great strain on businesses' capacity to offer a menu of what they want to government. And that's been difficult for policymakers and businesses alike. It is also difficult to make trade sexy. So in some ways, you know, one of the most helpful things you can do for a lot of businesses in the country, and I know um, that uh, Minister Stewart has, has, has talked about this before, I heard him at the BCC conference, talking about the difficulty if you're a small business that's based on parcels. Now, imagine you want to import parcels from the EU. That's a lot of traders in this country. Let's not underestimate that. This sounds like a boring problem. It's huge. Um, that has made your costs of doing trade go up hugely. It's, off, it's put many small businesses straightforwardly out of, out of business. 
but we we aren't going to hear about that in the same way trade wins that are about opening markets. We don't hear as much about you know liberalizing the market in Japan for for chicken. It is just hard to engage at a public level on the minutiae of trade. But I think sometimes we have had a comms-led strategy rather than um, a, you know a strategy led by by business interests. But as I say, I do think that is starting to change. I do think it's becoming a, a more productive uh, relationship between between business and DIT, from whom I speak to. Um, I think also rolling over the agreements was it was an enormous challenge that can't be underestimated. I would I would slightly sort of contradict both of the opening remarks, I guess, which is to say that the UK did have a trade function <laughs> as part of the EU and some of the reasons why the EU's deals look quite Brit Britain-shaped <laughs> is because the UK was there um, helping write them. Um, so it's not it's not quite fair or accurate to say that, that the UK didn't have trade expertise before the department was settled, but it's true that there's been huge expansion because you've never had a situation where you've had this kind of simultaneous negotiation. So I, th I think we've, we've moved beyond the capacity constraints that were the biggest challenge for the first two years. Um, we have just about got uh, getting through a pandemic, although it still looks like if we don't sort out, you know, more equitable vaccine distribution, global trade will be depressed for, for many years to come. Um, but we have a department that still needs to find a way to um, build up those relations with business so that they're not they're coming at the right moment they're engaging at the right moment when they are trying to set up these trade conversations um, rather than coming sort of after the press release has been sent out in terms of um, not just uh, the agreement in principle with Australia because that's one that's one is very important but that's that's one thing that's happened all the time you know w with for instance um, the the India ETP it's great to aspire to a free trade agreement um, and I'm sure we'll hear, hear more from the likes of Martin on this, but sometimes what you need is to get a parcel somewhere or be able to put your product in a different size of bottle. Those are hard things to get coverage on um, if you're not dealing with geeks like me. So we need, we need to think about how you have a trade strategy that is the right fit for the UK economy, um, but it also is consistent with moral values and ethics going forward. But I'm sure we're going to explore a lot more of these points in finer detail, but that's, that's been my experience over the past five years. Thanks very much, Anna. Um, I'd like to explore this point around whether business is actually driving the UK's trade strategy a bit more. Um, Martin, how have you found your interactions with DIT? I mean, before the referendum, SWA was quite close to uh, the EU's trade function as well. Have you noticed much difference? Do you find it helpful having an interlocutor in the UK? Um, yeah, well, I think firstly, happy birthday, DIT. Um, and I would uh, echo the, the comments earlier on by, by colleagues in the previous session about uh, you know how, how much has been done in in a short time uh, and I think everyone involved can look back on on the last five years with considerable pride uh, and uh, but there's there's much more to do and I think I would agree with the the uh, compliments um, uh, but also agree on the work ons as well it's 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 still a work in progress and I think when we talk about uh, trade deals and FTAs I think that's illustrative of, of the challenge, because if I look at the US, for example, for our industry, uh, the biggest uh, trade issue there for the last couple of years has been uh, the the Airbus Boeing uh, retaliation. So we own single malt Scotch whiskey, which cost us 600 million pounds. And I think in the public debate in lost exports, in the public debate, we rather focus too much, I think, on trade deals and not so much on, on issues like that. 
Um, and equally, I think Anna mentioned bottle size is very exciting for some people. Um, for small companies, the biggest gain that they've seen, other than the very welcome removal of, of uh, the retaliation uh, last month, is actually a change in the authorised bottle size that they can sell in the US. Um, you know, so these these are you know, for many people perhaps not very exciting, but they are significant. I think what a theme I would uh, draw out, uh, hopefully in, in, in the next hour, is, is really just about connections. So if I look at a DIT, the elements of a, 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 a trade strategy are largely there, one or two gaps here and there, um, maybe some quite significant ones, but generally there's a lot of stuff going on, but it's not drawn together. And I think what I, I see uh, the work on really is to make those connections. So you have to make the connections between what your domestic agriculture policy, let's say, um, is going to be um, with your trade policy. You have to make connections between what you're doing in a market with what you're doing back at HQ and also uh, with international organisations, notably the WTO. So I think there's there's lots of good stuff there uh, and, and loads of really good ideas and great practice. I think we just need to we do need to draw it together into some some sort of coherent whole. Thanks, Martin. Since you've uh, mentioned agriculture, it seems opportune to turn to Nick. Uh, agriculture probably the sector most affected by the Australia trade deal, certainly, and with a big place in other trade deals. How do you see the UK's trade strategy evolving as it affects your sector? Yeah, I mean, I th I think um, Martin really touched on the on the most important bit right at the end there when he talked about connections. Um, and when we talk about trade strategy, a lot of the discussion is on the specifics of trade policy or trade law. Actually, in a trade strategy, certainly the way we see it, it needs to be much more comprehensive than that, covering domestic policy areas as well. One of the concerns that really came through in the last couple of months when discussing with government some of the implications of the Australia agreement in principle and you know it's no surprise that uh, and and uh, you will all probably have seen the concerns we raised on on the degree of market access into the UK uh, for agricultural products in that deal but one of the concerns uh, that we had was in discussions it became clear that the argument the government was using was even if Australian producers were to fully utilise that market access, and uh, we accept there's uh, a degree of uncertainty about that. But if they were to, which would mean significant uh, increases in, in imports to this country, UK agriculture would be okay because we would uh, experience uh, incremental increase in productivity in the UK that would allow us to continue to compete over the transition of that uh, of the, the terms of that trade deal. The argument stopped there. There really wasn't anything behind where that incremental increase in productivity was coming from. What was driving it? Was it the market driving it? Was it government policy driving it? In fact, where was the modelling at all which showed that that would happen? It was seen to us to be a bit of finger in the air. And that's the concern, is that actually the trade policy here, which I agree with the others, is beginning to emerge uh, uh, something of a trade policy, um, is in isolation of uh, commercial policy, domestic agricultural policy and, and other elements. 
Um, and that, I think, is a worry. So we've gone off, we've, we've beginning to see what, what these trade deals might look like, um, but they seem to be driven uh, certainly more by political imperative than by economic ones. So when it comes to agriculture, where is the uh, accompanying domestic policy that really will provide the, the, the environment and landscape for farmers in the UK to be able to compete? And without going into too much detail now, in fact, I think there's a strong argument to say that domestic agricultural policy and UK trade policy are actually in tension with each other and are sort of pulling in opposite directions. We have a domestic policy that really is focusing on higher standards and that has to, to some degree, involve higher costs. Yet at the same time, we have a trade policy that really is predicated on uh, uh, requiring UK farmers to go toe to toe with some of the most cost effective producers in the world. Um, and it just doesn't seem to us that there's been maybe in the last few weeks, there's been a bit of discussion and emerging thinking about that. But up until this point, um, there hasn't really been acknowledgement or, an, or an, uh, a desire to take that really holistic cross government approach. And I think that's what's needed now is a is a is a much more joined up cross government approach um, uh, if, if needed. That is, of course, assuming that the government uh, does want to have a thriving domestic agricultural sector. Uh, if it doesn't, then uh, you know we we may be going down a different route. Thanks, Nick. Um, I'd like to turn now to to uh, the minister. Um, a couple of our panelists have said that they had a sense at times that UK trade policy was being driven by political rather than economic imperatives. Is that a, a characterization that you'd accept? Uh, well, no, I, I think, I mean, this whole and that kind of top level trade debate, you either uh, believe that lowering barriers and uh, encouraging trade is a good thing, um, or you're a protectionist. And if you're a protectionist, you fundamentally don't believe that a country with high standards, high quality performance, high expectations, decent salaries can compete in a world where you'll get undercut. And you, if you buy that protectionist argument, which is uh, a route to poverty being sidelined. It's, I mean, all the data suggests the opposite. The reason the world has seen the greatest transformation in human welfare in human history more quickly than ever before in human history is because people have defeated those arguments and they haven't been able to show complete joined up I dotted T crossed economic analysis of every subsector of their economy. They've accepted the big picture, which is you've got to believe in openness and we put openness at the heart of our government strategy it's the heart of the conservative party manifesto it's in the plan for growth it's in the integrated review and those who come up with who say oh we can't compete they're fundamentally it's a it's a it's a policy of despair suggesting we can't compete um, we can compete we will compete and we do compete and just by way of i mean the world is full of challenges most of all from the protectionists in various ways at the end of this extraordinary period in which we've done more for human beings than ever before in that people on the both left and right of politics have tried to tear apart and bring down the very global architecture and the openness which has led to this phenomenal increase in human welfare um, and so if you look over the last decade or more, you've seen rising trade tensions. If you look at 2019, pre-pandemic, according to UNCTAD's figures that came out last September, 
nine of the top 10 exporting countries in the world, nine out of 10 in 2019, saw their exports fall. Imagine that. Who, who would have thought that China's exports fell in 2019? Well, according to the UN, they did. So did the US. So did Japan. So did Italy. So did France. Um, this is a dangerous world. And protectionist arguments have always been there. And they always get political traction. And they're always against the interests of the very people they claim to represent. Thank you. Um, and just on that point, it's quite an interesting issue, actually. How do how does the consumer interest get reflected in uh, in UK trade policy? Um, do you think there is a danger that it's not uh, making itself felt? And I admit we've probably done this on this panel as well. We've got government, we've got opposition, we've got we've got business, and we've got journalists. But where are the consumers? Do you think that that, that the consumer interest is making itself felt in DIT, Minister? Uh, well, it's chronically not felt. Um, and even still, because of the company they keep, I find even those whose jobs is to represent the consumer interest seem to go native and start acting like they're a voice for the producer interest too. Um, so it's a serious problem. You get it in all sorts of areas where certain parts of the supply chain are given some premium value and the massively more important parts of the supply chain, which would benefit, for instance, for, from lower cost inputs, um, are entirely wiped out of the story, don't get hurt at all. So it's very, very difficult. Um, and um, the danger is we reverse those incredible advances that we've made uh, as a species around the world by opening up. And there's always a million professors and a thousand um, uh, producer groups ready to come along and tell you why uh, in their particular case, there are reasons why you shouldn't do it. Um, and despite the fact that the overwhelming evidence entirely points the other way. By, by the way, I, I, uh, just the one country in the top 10 whose exports did grow in 2019 was the UK, and we overtook France to be the fifth largest exporter in the world, just by way of giving us some confidence that we can cope. Uh, thank you very much. Um, could I ask uh, Emily now, do you think the UK's trade policy is, is working for consumers? And is there a danger with um, perhaps some of the signs recently of, of producer focus, both uh, looking at the government on, on steel safeguards and also Labour Party policy around uh, by British and, and procurement? Is there a risk that consumers are going to get sh shoved out of UK trade policy? So I think that it rather depends what how we define what consumer interests are um i mean i think that if uh, if 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 graham wants to go through with sort of red and tooth and claw uh free trade then i don't know why we're doing any free trade agreements with anyone why don't we just lower tariffs you know to all imports and let everything come into the country in whatever way they want without any impediment at all the reason is because we know that in reality, the reality of life is that there needs to be some form of regulation. So, for example, it is not in Britain's interests, it's not in the consumer's interest to have a system whereby um, we might be able to get insurance where, whereby we use uh, data from Europe, but there are protections on European data. And then we go and sign up to a trade agreement, possibly with CPTPP without necessarily thinking through whether or not the protections within the Trans-Pacific Partnership are compatible with the agreement that we're already in within Europe. Now, if we get that wrong, and we could get it right, but, you know, the government doesn't seem to even recognise that there's a problem. But, you know, if we if we don't get that right, then certainly the consumers will suffer because the system that they rely on for insurance will fall down, for example. 
Um, the uh, If you look at what consumers say they want, they say when they're polled um, that uh, that that they actually want to have food produced to particular standards when it comes to animal welfare. They don't want to have food that has been produced in a cruel way. They don't want to have their environmental protections undermined. And certainly the Conservative Party used to think that too. Um, you, I mean, there's a famous uh, interview that Michael Gove did on television um, on that uh, country country file, is it called? I think I'm looking at Nick um, on Sunday evening where where he said, you know, we can't expect our farmers to maintain you know, the standards that we want um, and yet allow them to be undermined by food that is produced in a cheaper way uh, with different standards. Of course, we can't do that. We obviously have to have a trade policy that, uh, that has a, an, a level playing field. It isn't just a level playing field in terms of tariffs. It's a level playing field in terms of regulation. And that's what's in the interest of the consumer. Now, if we just think that it's the interest of the consumer is the interest of the consumer is about price then I think that we are fooling ourselves you know it might be argued that it would be in the interest of consumers for us to have incredibly cheap steel in this country I mean we need steel for everything you know for building buildings or for for building ships or you know there's I mean everything it's a it's a core industry so maybe it's in our interests to have it really cheap no because we need to be making it in this country because it is a core industry. If we were to allow cheap dumping, dumping of cheap Chinese steel into our country and for our steel industry to be decimated, we wouldn't have a steel industry. And then actually, do you know what? Not only would we as a country not be able to make our own steel, but we would be dependent on other countries who at that point could put the price up because we wouldn't have a steel industry at home to be able to compete with it. So I think there are certain strategic industries that clearly we need to have regulated and clearly there needs to be protections of. But if one was to, to listen to the siren voices coming out of DIT and out of the Adam Smith Institute, which is that we should just have free trade with, 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 with none of the rawer and rougher edges knocked off them, then I think that we are not doing our country any good and we're not doing any good for the consumer. Thank you very much for that. Um, I will come to Nick in a moment just to ask about the standards issue, uh, but I will just flag one thing which has turned up in the Q&A, which is a suggestion uh, to, to Graham, I suppose, that uh, DIT already has a Director General for Exports, but perhaps it should have one for Imports as well. Uh, to promote the interests of importing businesses and consumers. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. Well, that's a uh, uh, pay grade, uh, James, but uh, we, we, we're not, uh, uh, we have done work looking at the uh, security of supply chains um, in the light of the pandemic. So we've done some work there, but generally speaking, we're not in the, uh, in the imports uh, business. Uh, just, just to come back, uh, really, if I may, on what Emily said, because what she said, bore no, uh, <laughs> had uh, no relationship with reality. Uh, we have been absolutely clear that uh, whether it's chlorine, um, washed chicken or hormone injected beef, that uh, our standards which are set in law are not going to change and anything that is imported into this country uh, does so. Um, I guess in this uh, august setting, it's worth going to the, and Nick will be able to comment after this, but you, when it comes to the, as opposed to the end product, and you look again at the production standards, that's that's where you get into the interesting conversation. But if, I mean, I've, I've known people um, say, you know, well, we have the highest production standards in the world, and no one should be allowed to sell to us who doesn't meet our production standards. And I'm going, well, can you follow your own logic? 
um, because as we rely on imported food, for instance, we would starve if we, we genuinely think our standards are higher than anybody else's and we're not going to let anyone else doesn't meet our standards as specified by us, defined by us and regulated by us then they can't sell us anything. Well, we would, we'd all get hungry pretty quickly. Um, so, but I, I accept, and Nick will be interested in this point, that this, you know, I think the product standards were absolutely clear and we're not changing them. Uh, production standards, uh, we have to believe, and that's where I think the coordination point is a valid one. We have to make sure that we move in a way that is that it is compatible. But I, I believe it is, and we've got high quality provenance. We've got brands, we've got approaches that find a way to take something which is produced to a higher standard than some of their rivals to produce a similar product and are, none, are nonetheless able to compete. Um, so I guess the, the fear is if you if you ever have more expensive systems, you can't compete. Well, most of the top selling brands in all sorts of areas don't have the lowest cost of production in the market, but they're still the best selling product in the market. Um, so I, I would just say again, that, you know, not to shy away from that difficult issue, but also to recognise it isn't. Um, it's not just about price, not just in terms of imports, but not to, in terms of production either. Thanks. Nick, you were on the uh, Trade and Agriculture Commission that the government set up last year to discuss these issues. How do you think the government's striking the balance between free trade and, and maintaining British standards? Yeah, I mean, it, it remains to be seen. I guess we're all sort of watching, you know, from the edge of our seats exactly how this, this plays out. Um, and we're we're eagerly awaiting the government's response uh, to the to the Trade and Agriculture Commission's recommendations. And and uh, Minister Stewart's absolutely right that there is a really important distinction between product standards, production standards. So when we talk about things like chlorine chicken and hormone beef, uh, hormone treated beef, you know, those do relate to the to the final product and the safety of the final product. And I think we are confident that the government has made some really uh, um, straightforward assurances around that. Which uh, um, which we're we're confident that that will keep and will do do the job and will operate their own independent SPS policy that will make sure those standards in the UK are applied to all imports. But when it when it comes to things like animal welfare or environmental impact or climate change, those sorts of things, it certainly gets a bit trickier. And I think it's also right. There are some there's some imports that might be produced to different standards but which will be important for these this country's consumers and businesses, and also which might not be an issue which is particularly important to people in terms of that difference in standards. It may not be important. So having sort of blanket bans, it meets our standards or it doesn't, and if it doesn't, it doesn't come in, is clearly crude and wouldn't work. So actually, one of the, one of the things the Commission recommended, which we think is really important, is for government and industry and stakeholders to come together and do some thinking about what those core standards are. What are actually the standards which really do matter? They matter because they're what we require of our farmers or because the public thinks they are particularly important. And then how do you go about uh, uh, accommodating those within trade policy? So incorporating them within trade deals, perhaps through preferential tariffs uh, given to those uh, uh, produce that meets the core standards. And how do you actually apply them to imports generally? How do you go and get those standards accepted by international standard setting bodies so that countries all around the world are sort of raising up to your kind of level? Those are really that, those are really important questions. They do need answering 
quickly um, because things are moving forward quickly, etc. Um, but that that whole issue around core standards, what what are our core standards? What are the things that really matter to us that we want to make sure are properly catered for in trade policy is, is the key question here. Thanks. And I'm sure we are all eagerly awaiting the release of the uh, second part of the national food strategy, which I think should be in the uh, next couple of weeks. And we'll probably have interesting things to say on trade. Uh, Emily, could I uh, turn to you now? Do you have any thoughts on this point that you'd like to share? I mean, I was just wanting to follow up on what Nick said about standards, because I think that it's right. You know, we so we may have, you know, the much vaunted ban on hormone injected beef and chlorine washed chicken. But there are an awful lot of other problems too. Let me just focus in on one, um, which is the use of antibiotics, blanket use of antibiotics in Australia, uh, which is used as a growth promoter in itself. Now, as Nick has, has very politely said, or has made clear, you know, there we are in the process of negotiating a deal with Australia where we still don't have an agreed set of standards in this country. So we've got the chlorine chicken, the hormone beef, but we don't have all of the other issues as well. We haven't had an agreement as to what the absolute basics are that we would not expect food coming into this country to duck below. And since we haven't had that agreed yet, it's very difficult, therefore, for us to be starting to, to be to be signing up to trade deals. Because if we had agreed to this a trade deal with particular lacunae um, in the Australia deal, then sure as eggs as eggs, <laughs> wherever they're produced, um, other countries around the world will be demanding the same standards, you know, demanding the same deal and saying, well, why won't you let our beef that uh, that is produced through um, use of massive amounts of antibiotics into your country? You've suddenly now decided that you're that you don't like it. Um, and remember, you know, the, the deal with Australia does allow for a huge increase in the amount of beef um, coming into this country if the if the Australians were to use the uh, the full amount that has been agreed and it's happening on day one on day one after the agreement they will be massively increasing the amount of beef that's allowed into the country the Australians say they won't use it obviously the answer to that is well why have you asked for it then if you're not going to use it I mean um, but but you know that's why we're kind of we're putting this we're when people talk about there being a, a an emerging strategy, my concern is that we're in our rush to sign up to deals quickly. We're signing the deals before we've worked out what our strategy is, and we need to have some form of consistency. And we need to have some form of overall strategy, which we don't have. Thank you. Uh, just, um, I mean, this question of strategy obviously involves uh, what you want, but also who you're targeting. Um, so if I could just turn the conversation now a bit towards where the UK is, is looking at. Uh, we started off with continuity agreements. Now we have got, or at any rate, almost got Australia. Uh, where should be next for UK trade policy? Martin, do you have any thoughts on that? Uh, well, yeah, for us, it's India. Um, and I think it's it's been really interesting to see how uh, the the UK has changed its position um, uh, since the uh, you know the the famous tilt to Indo-Pacific uh, and and the realization that the trade is an important part part of that uh, that tilt. Um, so you know if you look at FTAs, generally they're most appropriate for countries that are emerging economies. Um, where you have the traditional trade issues, notably tariffs, and I'm contractually obliged to describe India's 150% tariff as exorbitant 
uh, on Scotch whisky, and and that is all the modelling shows that uh, if we could address that in an FTA, then it would be transformational. I mean, we talk about things being transformational for industries all the time, but this really would. It would treble our exports and make India our second largest market in the world. So it's it is a big deal for us. Um, beyond India, um, Southeast Asia, uh, Latin America, uh, and and yeah, the. I think many would would like to see uh, the EPAs uh, reviewed, uh, coming at, at that from different perspectives, and I would imagine that that would be a, a priority as well. But when we're looking at uh, developed economies, with the exception of, of the US, either there is an FTA in place or there will be soon. And the question will be, I mean, the future really will be uh, tinkering with existing agreements to update them and to secure better market access. So Canada, Mexico, really interesting examples of, of how that's going to play out in, in practice. So, so the major emerging economies in particular, we would see as, as a top priority. And is that something you'd agree with from the point of view of the UK economy as a whole? Where should where should the next targets be? Um, well, I, I think it's uh, I think it's certain, I mean, I wouldn't disagree with Martin in terms of where the key key markets will be for whiskey. But um, in terms of the broader UK economy, that's a bit more difficult. So some some of what, what's interesting is is um, uh, it is useful in terms of consumption, but also use of things like the services economy to look at that as a proxy. So those are growth markets for the middle class. That also informs DIT's approach. And, you know, they have said this many times. It was in the Chatham House speech where Liz Truss laid out sort of her, her big vision for UK trade was to target um, countries where you see that um, population growth in areas where people are going to have more disposable income and therefore going to want the goods and services that the UK might sell. So there has there has been a coherence with the approach of some of uh, with the approach towards some of those markets. So I'd agree with that in terms of selling UK goods. Absolutely. I think what's more challenging if you look beyond, if you look at the economy as a whole and not just in terms of exports, and I, I don't, I'm not going to bang on and on and on about imports because we're talking about a grand vision here, but when you are trying to match up um, imports, exports, growth markets, you do need to think about your industrial strategy at the same time, especially if the UK is going to, the UK government's going to deliver on this big promise. And for me, the biggest promise has been trade equals jobs. That's been the biggest promise made by DIT, I think, in the last five years. And I don't think anyone would disagree with that. Um, and I think what's going to be interesting is, yes, you do need to know where those growth markets are. But are you matching that up with your broad industrial strategy for the UK economy? Are you thinking through the supply chains for things like electric vehicles? Are you thinking through how you approach reform of your agricultural sector in terms of um, you know, the replacement for cap? Um, and it's when you is when you see the the import strategy matching up with the export strategy that I think this trade equals jobs sort of manifesto might start to 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 make a little more sense. So I do think there is a coherence as Martin lays out in terms of where those growth markets are and where um, DIT are sending some of its best and brightest around the world. People are looking at Latin America very closely within the department. I know. Um, so I think there is good work happening there. I think what, what what for me is a concern at times is that I don't always see that fit with an industrial strategy. We saw the Industrial Strategy Council removed from government. I know that there are sometimes struggles between Bayes and DIT in terms of getting a joined up approach between UK industry needs and um, in terms of things like trying to combine the trade policy with defence and foreign policy priorities. 
So um, I think it will be interesting to see whether or not those target markets are always the ones best suited to the resilience of the UK economy going forward as well, and the right trade barriers rather than just just the the, the liberalisation um, that that some industries rightly are are pushing for. Thanks very much. That is a fascinating point and also fits with some of the things that have been turning up in the uh, Q&A questions about how well the trade strategy is fitting with the development of, of manufacturing in the UK. Um, Graham, could I ask, do you have any thoughts on how well DIT is working with the Department for Business, with the industrial strategy? We spoke a bit earlier this morning uh, about whether DIT should, more, should be merged into the Foreign Office, but how about a merger with BIS? Would that work better or are you, are you better off as you are? Well, again, you're you're tempting me above my pay grade, but uh, well, I think historically the trade elements have been either part of what is fundamentally a domestic industrial department, um, which struggles with its legacies to be a forward-looking department. There's always the balance there, but it's so it's a domestic department uh, with legacy issues, um, or it's or, or the parts of it have been a part of the Foreign Office, which is fundamentally not commercial. So it's certainly, maybe I've just gone native in three and a half years, but I think having a dedicated trade department is absolutely the right thing to do. Um, when I was the investment minister, I said, despite having people in 118 countries around the world, um, the only department of state with people all around the world and all over the country, that our number one job wasn't actually facilitating foreign investment. And my staff would look at me and go, what are you talking about? And I go, well, our number one job is to work with the rest of Whitehall to make sure that collectively they don't screw up the most investable major economy on earth, as suggested by the figures. So our number one job is to be joined up with other departments to have a coherent offer. So I entirely accept all the points. Well, the, the points about the importance of coherence um, and perhaps no government will ever be completely coherent. But I think we're working really well with base. So we're looking at how our export support should be better fitted with, with them and working together on that. So there's a lot of work going on there. Because if you're an SME in particular, and they're the ones where often we can make the more material difference. They, they just want to grow. They don't, they don't have this fancy thing about exports or trade. Um, I mean, I meet really quite large companies that don't have a dedicated trade capability. I remember one of our very largest top 10 companies that only introduced it in the last three years, and they're in a highly regulated sector. Um, you might think, what on earth were they doing before? But they didn't have it. And so for SMEs, we do need to be joined up. And we're working very well, I think, with Bayes. Um, and I think there is coherence on strategy. Take clean growth, for instance. Um, we're really working hard on that. And I, I'm, I'm co-chairing a uh, energy supply chain task force with Anne-Marie Trevelyan, the energy minister, precisely. Though. So we are working together on the same thing. We're talking to the supply chain about how that transition can happen. Um, uh, and trying to learn the lessons from offshore wind, which has been a phenomenal success in terms of deployment, but perhaps hasn't delivered uh, as great an industrial capability as we'd like. And we are really working hard together to get a framework that means that if the, around my constituency, for instance, sort of zero carbon um, Humber cluster, hydrogen, CCUS, biomass, a whole combination of things coming together, if that works, we really want to make sure that our policies are in place to maximise the industrial capability within this country. And from the beginning, that's not just building domestic business, that's bringing other companies in using our investment arms so they land in the UK um, and then we can export. You've seen the success of that with us working closely with Bayes on the uh, uh, EVs, for instance. You've seen 
how the uh, you know the office for investment uh, which we've set up just in the last year is bringing in um, significant investments in the northwest with Vauxhall and the northeast with Nissan um, and uh, you know so you know I, I would never say it was perfect um, and the nature of departmental life is it's slightly silent but we really are working very hard to make sure it is coordinated and I suppose again if I was asked a sort of high level what's our uh, you know one level I think DIT's role is to um, is to hitch uh, UK business to the fastest growing parts of the world to go back to what Anna was talking um, uh, about um, and uh, and and also to um, as I say to then make sure that we in areas like uh, sorry I'm not making any sense here I was going to say our headline offer to the world is as a science innovation technology and I would include education superpower because three and a half years as a trade minister I'm always struck by the correspondence between what the world's most looking for and what we're good at and our capabilities in terms of cutting edge innovation design um, technology and the education that backs it up is really important part of that so and that's what the IR says is our kind of central offer and I think we do need to make sure that everything behind it domestically and internationally um, adds up to a coherent whole so that we can carry on that success which we did see in 2019 and see it sustained in which case we could then talk about the exporting miracle um, but uh, we'll wait till we'll need to recover from the pandemic first. Thanks can I just come back to you on that point about clean growth actually we've had one question about uh, scoring new trade deals for climate change impacts in the the the, the scoping assessment for the Australian New Zealand deals there was a, an environmental assessment but it was a little bit it was it was fairly short and high level is that something that you'll be working on in the in, in the final uh, assessment for the Australia deals and, and more generally how do you think deals can support the UK's climate change objectives? Well we, we're seeking to uh, use our trade deals in order to forward that agenda um, and as we do on uh, on wider areas from human rights to um, uh, to labour uh, contrary to what Emily said earlier um, but you know it's uh, it's not something we dictate very often people it's like with the EU conversation why aren't you doing this as if it was up to us solely to do it alone it takes two to tango um, and what we want to do is develop our engagement lower the barriers um, strengthen partnership and increase mutual prosperity and while we're doing that we've got to use that to best effect but I sometimes think and maybe it's just part of being opposition I mean Emily's great on questions and so far I haven't had almost a single assertion um, uh, so it'd be nice to hear what Labour as the alternative as Her Majesty's opposition what their alternative strategy would be rather than the questions they'd like answered um, but uh, you'd sometimes think uh, to listen to it that uh, you know because you can't have the perfect agreement in which everyone suddenly does everything exactly the way we want them to therefore no deal should be done and of course there is that history of um, various parties in, in Parliament talking about how they like trade and then never seemingly voting for almost any trade deal that comes up um, although that's not entirely true of uh, Emily because she's done both even just on the Japan deal where I think she didn't vote for the when the EU did it and then did vote for it when we did it um, while saying that ours wasn't as good as the EU one but that's a complexity which Emily would best answer. Thanks. Perhaps I, I could ask Emily to come in here and, and um, just answer the, the question of what what could we be doing to get more of what we want on climate change in trade deals? Should we be more dictatorial, more willing to to walk away, or are there other things that we should be doing? 
I think that um, that in terms of priorities on trade deals, I would begin with trying to repair the trade deal that we already have with the European Union, which is the biggest trade deal and is half our trade and has massive great holes in it. And I think that really our priority should be that rather than spending time trying to score smaller trade deals that make very little difference in terms of our gross domestic product. So there's that. Um, I think that when one looks at the free trade agreements that we've had until now, they are they have not been done on a sector by sector basis. They have been you know, a little bit cut and paste and there hasn't been a great deal of difference made. I think that we should approach our trade policy on the basis of 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 our, our trade policy being an expression of our economic policy of what is happening with our economy domestic. We should be looking at where are areas of growth? Where is the area of potential? When we're negotiating trade deals, we should be looking at how do we assist this sector? And clearly, green jobs have to be a priority on that. And we have yet to see on any of the free trade agreements any specific chapter where we have made any difference in terms of the trade agreement. That's why your question in relation to Australia is so important, because although there may be a little subheading about that, there is very little depth to it. And of course, we need to be working on that. I look forward to there being a much better agreement, I suspect, with New Zealand when it comes to the environment, when it comes to climate change and carbon. But I don't expect that to have come from Boris Johnson. I suspect that that will come from Jacinda Ardern, who will insist on that being a chapter within the free trade agreement that we will be agreeing with New Zealand. What I want to see is something as ambitious with Australia, but I suspect we may not get it. But I do think that what we should be doing is looking at things that I think we should be more ambitious. I mean, listen, Graham has asked me, so let me just say, I think that trade policy should be an extension of our domestic economic interest. And I think it should also be an expression of our values as a country. I think we need to have a more ambitious trade policy for UK exports in areas of comparative advantage. So we haven't talked about professional services or finance or construction or engineering, the arts, leisure activities, you know, education, green technology, all of these things. We need trade deals with bespoke chapters and provisions for these key export industries and one which leads the way on mutual recognition of professional qualifications on, on mode for uh, trade and services, on raising standards for all. We need to promote our export industries, not just by new trade deals, but by the improving the existing arrangements that we have by doing all the hard work, the less sexy stuff, you know, to break down non-tariff barriers, including those that we now have with Europe. And our trade policy has to also promote our values and wider priorities, whether that's human rights, climate change, or working for better working conditions for everyone around the world. I think that our trade policy should have proper parliamentary accountability, which it doesn't at the moment, and the government resisted in the in the trade the trade act. Um, I think that we have a golden opportunity to set the tone for international trade at this time. And given that we're responsible for three quarters of the trade deals that have been struck in the last year, I just think that this is an opportunity that we're squandering. So there you are, Graham. There's a policy for you. Uh, thanks, Emily. Um, Nick, I'd just like to turn to you now, actually. Um, there have been sort of allegations raised of, of protectionism as regards agriculture. Um, what would a, an agriculture-friendly UK trade strategy look like as far as you're concerned? Yeah, I'm always quite amused when, when we get the sort of protectionist um, accusation levelled at us. I mean, 
Um, you know, you go to the shops now, you see how uh, comparatively affordable food is in the UK. The level of choice, uh, you know, is absolutely astonishing. Greg Stewart was correct when he said, I think, you know, the, the, the progress that free trade has brought over a couple of centuries to the developed world is, is extraordinary and we all benefit from it now. So a position which says we need to be a little bit cautious about how much further we uh, liberalise tariffs doesn't seem to me to be somehow protectionist or going to lead to um, uh, you know, severe um, problems for for uh, for UK consumers. So, um, you know, that that for us is important. It's about how you look to liberalise. You accept that the government is looking to to do FTAs. They will involve uh, increased market access, um, but do it in a way that manages um, manages the impact. And I think one of the things that gets missed, uh, not by those I think who understand the details, but it does get missed in the popular discourse, is that free trade still involves winners and losers. And the idea that actually free trade is just unalloyed upside, I'm afraid is wrong. Yes, you hope that there's a net benefit. Yes, you hope that that net benefit over the long term might allow you to compensate the losers. But just go and talk to the Australian automotive sector about what free trade can mean for some sectors who uh, are on the wrong side of the comparative advantage argument. So you do need to tread carefully. You do need to understand, you do need to get the balance right between producers and consumers. And I think that's all, all that we ask for, so that you ensure uh, market access into the UK is properly calibrated and balanced, uh, that we actually get something in return. We make sure that the upsides here, and we really do want to be able to export more great British produce, not just Scotch whiskey, but uh, everything else that we produce in this country to, uh, uh, to countries around, uh, around the world. But we also want to see how you can use trade policy to promote the sorts of standards that we're asking our own farmers to, to, to adhere to. Um, and actually, how do you use trade policy to drive more sustainable models of production and consumption overseas, rather than an old sort of free trade model that just says, we'll get it where we can cheapest, regardless of how it's produced. I think that that's the old model. Let's have the new model that actually drives those standards up. Uh, thank you. Uh, I, oh, sorry, you froze there for a moment, Nick. Thank you. Um, just on that point around whether people understand what trade means, winners and losers, that sort of thing. I'd like to come to Anna, if I may, just ask, how well do you think the government is communicating its trade policy? We've had some questions about public backlashes and so on. So if the government does have a trade strategy, how well do you think it's been uh, making people aware of that and getting public buy-in? Um, well, I, I don't think we've had a true test of it yet. I think has been uh, the biggest the biggest problem is and and um, some interesting people there's some interesting Antipodean people to speak to about this where they have learnt what backlashes really look like in terms of what happens if you don't build people's expectations up in the right way implementation becomes very challenging um, because these deals not only need to get through Parliament which is a whole process of its own but they also need to get through broader public consent that is more just than just being the government of the day. Um, and so I think what we can learn from, from recent responses, um, I don't wanna just focus on that point of the Australia deal, but it, it obviously is the, the, the most obvious example, is that if you are going to take that decision, it's a very costly political decision potentially to, to have this level of market liberalization. If you are going to take that decision, then 
you certainly should prepare people for it if you want to have the smoothest possible implementation experience. And I think the reaction we saw was that not everyone was prepared for that news. Um, and so I do think that there needs to be a defensive communication strategy as well as a proactive communication strategy. If if what you're trying to do is, is build the best possible situation of community consent, because it really is true that um, these trade deals do get, you know, they get signed. They often get signed many, many times over. But when, once they do get signed and they start to feed through to public consciousness, it's also about getting the next deal over the line and about the trust in broad communities that you have. And if you damage trust, it can be very costly. Um, we saw this with TTIP negotiations and how painful some of that became for governments. So you can't underestimate this just because you get this particular uncomfortable situation over the line by, and I, I don't think it's quite fair to say it was pulling a fast one either, but by, by being prepared to take a bumpy ride, you, just, you make a decision to have a bumpy ride now by not necessarily preparing industry for, your, for a decision. That becomes all the more challenging later on, because the first thing you then are doing next is saying, OK, what would you like from the next trade agreement? And all of a sudden, industry is a lot less willing to engage. And then you have, a, a, you know, a hole in, in your process where you're trying to build the best possible deal for the UK economy. So I think in terms of communication, it is one of the most tricky things in the world to communicate. But you do need to communicate those losses very effectively and very proactively early on. You need to say who the losers are going to be and you need to offer them a coherent plan. And I think that is um, something that, that, that DIT needs to learn from international examples as well as from its recent experience with Australia from. Thanks, Anna. Um, you mentioned the next deal and potential controversies, which uh, I will take as license to move on to uh, CPTPP. Uh, CPTPP was quite controversial in a lot of the partner countries. I think it got over a million people marching against it in the streets of Tokyo when it was going through uh, five or six years ago. Um, Graham, do you think the UK is is prepared potentially to see that kind of opposition to CPTPP? And also, how, and also do, you, how, how, do, you, how do you see CPTPP fitting into the, the UK's trade strategy? Well, of course, uh, um, well, in, in terms of your first question, um, I don't know. It'd be interesting to, um, uh, I mean, Emily's just come out with a fairly extraordinary statement of Labour policy, which is uh, so fixated are they on the EU, she literally doesn't want to talk to anyone else, um, which would certainly mean there wasn't a lot of activity at DIT since we're not responsible for the negotiations with the EU. Um, so I don't know whether she wants to revisit that because suggesting because you think, uh, you know, the, leaving the EU is a mistake, you shouldn't do anything in the rest of the world um, does seem to me fairly extraordinary and a bit of a uh, a bit of a uh, an error, um, but I, I don't know. I um, I'd be interested in the other panelists' views around uh, public perception. It, it depends, I guess, what people get told. I mean, if they get told by a whole series of linked groups, um, and we saw it happen with the, um, uh, as you say, with the uh, uh, TTIP um, before, um, I'm a, a combination of issues in which uh, uh, which were entirely false and some with probably some substance and then all mixed together. It becomes very, very difficult. So Anna's right. You've got to make sure you don't win a battle and lose the war um, because you've got to keep people with you, both um, the populace and uh, industry. Uh, and so that, that getting that conversation right is challenging and we have constantly to learn on the go. Uh, I think, you know, I agree with most of the points that Anna made there about trying to get it right. So, um, you know, we've got to make sure that are being convinced that the, the TPP is the right thing to do, 11 nations, 
um, in part of the sort of fastest growing part of the world. We've got our Indo-Pacific tilt, uh, you know, the deals with Australia and Japan open the door to, to that. Um, uh, you know, I, mean, I can give you more arguments about why it's great, but the danger is that we don't listen to or anticipate the arguments as to why it isn't great and why it's seen as some terrible end of civilization um, for us here. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'll stop talking and be all ears because that's what that's what we're going to listen out for and then make sure that we engage in the right way, learn from what we've done so far um, and never get to that position which Anna painted, which I find all too credible um, if we don't get it right, where we sort of, you know, get something over the line and but we've burnt our credibility and therefore we you know, we lose nerve within government and without to be able to do the next right thing because we've lost the argument, um, even though we won on the last particular case. So that's um, interesting. Uh, the only thing I just add as a headline, which is always worth saying, um, uh, is that the 13% the, the, uh, of global GDP, I think, which the CPTPP members represents, coupled with our own, takes you to about 16, which is roughly the same as the EU 27. So in terms of the kind of global um, significance, it doesn't make it the same as being a member of the EU and all the rest of it, but it's a, it's a way of putting it in perspective um, as to how significant an area of this world is and that we think 99.5% of um, UK exports um, would be tariff free. And you look at going back to Nick and worries here about um, food and drink and winners and losers and being honest about that. Well, meat markets in Europe are flatlining, if not potentially going into reverse over time. And yet uh, in that part of the world, you're looking, you're expecting a 70% increase. Um, so, you know, I would say, you know, if you were in the meat industry, uh, given the state of the European meat market and the state of the Asian ones, uh, you would be, I would have thought far from feeling that you were being uh, sold out as one of the losers, you would be cheering every step of the way because the opportunity to get into um, a part of the world where there's real growth and where prices at the moment, Nick will be able to correct me on this, but I think, you know, for some of our common meats are can be twice as high in Korea and Japan as they are here, um, which is why the Australians haven't been using the quota they've had to date. So this idea that all their ranches are ready to flood us, I mean, I, I'm, I can't predict the future, maybe they will increase. Um, but uh, all I can tell you is that in 2019, I think they used 79% of the quota they had, um, and that was tariff-free. Um, so the place to be in the meat business over coming years is in Asia, and we're looking to sign the CPTPP precisely so that we can get ourselves on the inside of that and allow our brilliant um, producers of Scotch whiskey, Irish whiskey, um, meat, and other products um, and services to access those markets. That's that's our strategy. I will just come to Nick very briefly then. Uh, are you eagerly awaiting new opportunities or are you going to be more like your, your Japanese counterparts, the Norkyo, and be the, the leading voice against? Um, I mean, CPTPP is certainly interesting. Um, and I was talking more about the bilaterals with Australia and New Zealand, which are uh, huge net exporters of agricultural produce, small populations, large land masses, opportunities for UK farms into those markets, I think, are uh, small. I think even DIT recognises that. CPTPP is, is different. There are markets there, particularly those who don't produce the sort of food that, that the UK producers are very good at, uh, red meat, for example, uh, and others as well. Um, so, yeah, absolutely. We think that there are opportunities there. There are opportunities also in North Africa, Middle East, all sorts of other places. But of course, I think we have to be 
realistic as well. Um, those markets being in CPTPP are already very much occupied by uh, New Zealand and Australian farmers, for example, Canadians as well, others. So it's not something we can just think we can walk into. Um, and it, it is on the other side of the world. So I think while the opportunities certainly are there, potentially growing markets, and as Minister Stewart said rightly, good, good prices at the moment, um, it's still a highly competitive market with uh, highly competitive producers incumbent uh, uh, there. So uh, that's where it comes back to the points I made before about uh, uh, a proper strategy where domestic policy and trade policy combine to help improve the competitiveness of UK producers. Uh, and I'm afraid it's also going to uh, need time and resource uh, money from government to put boots on the ground in those markets to actually really help capitalise on the opportunities to open up markets and maintain those markets once they're open as well and promote British food. So we really need uh, uh, you know, that kind of commitment um, to, to, to get the best out of those opportunities. Thanks. Um, could I just come to Emily now on, on CPTPP? I mean, setting aside the question of uh, the, the, the need to look again at the EU deal, do you think it's worth doing? CPTPP? Well, I mean, on DIT's own figures, uh, a deal with uh, the Trans-Pacific Partnership will, over the next 15 years, um, increase our GDP by 0.017%. Um, so, uh, and that's, uh, we, the, Malaysia is, uh, is concerned about joining CPTPP um, and can't be guaranteed to be part of it. When the government talks about uh, the uh, CPTPP giving us access to a burgeoning middle-class market, um, effectively, that is the market in China and in India, both of which are and neither of which are in CPTPP. So, you know, I, I think there's a little bit of kind of, you know, of signaling, <laughs> but it doesn't necessarily and rhetoric, but it doesn't necessarily kind of amount to what what it is that is promised. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I've asked 236 questions. Um, uh, of the government in relation to CPTPP. I think that, you know, I'm one of the few people in the country that can actually say it, CPTPP, um, but that's because I've been in this job for, for you know, a year and a bit now. Um, but, you know, when the government consulted on the, on the Trans-Pacific Partnership, they only got 81 specific responses. I don't think it's something which the public even really know about. Uh, they don't know what it amounts to. They don't know what it means. They don't know what it is that we're signing up to. There's been an awful lot of tears shed for us leaving the last, uh, trade group that we were part of, but we seem to be just kind of walking into the next one without necessarily knowing the details of what it means. May I just on the subject of rhetoric, just in case there has been any misunderstanding, and I wouldn't want this to, to, to kind of get into Tory rhetoric, um, the biggest priority as far as I'm concerned is to fix the big trade deal with the European Union. I find it weird that the, um, that the Department for International Trade is a donut department and misses half of trade that we do with the rest of the world, seems to miss the European Union. Um, but it does seem to me that there are, you know, I would start by fixing mutual recognition of professional qualifications. I would make sure that there was a proper veterinary agreement with the European Union. I would work on regulatory equivalents for financial services. I would sort out the mess of visa rules for short-term business visitors. All these sorts of things are the things which business talks to us about all the time. And actually, you know, if we're going to take a realistic, truthful look at trade and not just mention the word Brexit and think that we can all just run around the place 
you know, kind of, you know, screaming. Let, you know, we've left the European Union. We want to get proper trade across the world. That includes the whole world, including our nearest neighbours that are the European Union. Yeah, we've left. We now need to make sure that we're trading properly, which does mean fixing the glaring holes in our biggest trade agreement and not getting distracted necessarily by false promises of the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which, as I say, according to the government's own figures, only will result in an increase over 15 years of 0.01%. And what is it that we're giving up in order to join CPTPP? I'd love to have some answers to my 237 questions. Thank you. We are very nearly at the end uh, of our session today. Uh, I will just ask one final question, Minister. Right? Would you like to have EU trade under your purview as well? Do you think it would be helpful to, to bring everything under DIT? You've got the trade commissioners in Europe doing that work already in terms of boots on the ground. Would it be helpful to have the policy too? Uh, well, as a member of a government that has decided not to do that, clearly I wouldn't. <laughs> Um, because we are like the Borg and have just a single thought running through us all. So I shan't be tempted uh, down that particular line. Um, just, to, I mean, with the CPTPP, it is a fast growing part of the world. Our, our exports are expected, business as usual, to grow uh, by 65% between now and 2030, 37 billion. Um, and uh, uh, lowering barriers further uh, will add to that growth. Um, and I'm not sure that government modelling, even that done by my own highly esteemed department, has a great track record in predicting the future. Um, and all I know is that if you uh, if you build closer ties, you lower the barriers and you encourage trade. And that's exactly what we're going to do. I expect to do the 37 billion plus a considerable amount more and hopefully more than the 0.0, whatever it was, 1 per 7 percent, um, which uh, one of our analysts has doubtless come out with. Um, but uh, we'll uh, we'll see. But I'm very optimistic about that. And I'm glad um, on the record that Emily doesn't think, even though it prioritises the EU, she does recognise that the whole rest of the world, where most global growth is, is worth some of her precious time. Um, we're certainly going to keep dedicated to it. And I'm really delighted to you, James, and the rest of the panel for contributing to this interesting conversation today. Thank you very much. Uh, and on the subject of modelling, I don't think we can ever do better than uh, I think it was Niels Bohr who said the predictions were very hard, especially about the future. Um, but sadly, that is uh, that is all we have time for in this event and also the end of our IFG trade day. So uh, I think I should start off by wishing a very happy birthday to uh, DIT. Uh, I looked this up beforehand. Apparently, the fifth is the wooden anniversary. I don't know what that says, but uh, but um, perhaps it will be perhaps it will be pleasant. Um, thank you very much to the whole panel for their fascinating reflections on UK trade policy as it's evolved over the last few years and going ahead into the future. Uh, and thanks very much to everyone watching, particularly to any of our especially committed viewers who have been here since 12 o'clock this morning. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening, and we hope you've enjoyed this edition of IFG Live. Please do subscribe to hear more. And if you'd like to know about our upcoming events, please visit instituteforgovernment.org.uk slash events. Thank you.